John chapter 3, we are currently in a series in the Gospel of John, if you are visiting with us, that will take us through most of this calendar year. John's Gospel is unique in the focus it has on Jesus as the only Savior and the need to believe and keep hammering that message home. John reports Jesus saying in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, says Jesus, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the words of Jesus. This weekend, we come to chapter 3, and what's interesting is that this chapter begins a series of conversations Jesus is having with different individuals from very diverse backgrounds. And so the first conversation is with a man who's a highly educated, very respected religious leader in Israel. The next conversation, which will be the Samaritan woman, is a person at the other end of the scale, so to speak, on almost every level. And so each of these, there's about four of these conversations coming, and they're all with people from very divergent backgrounds, showing us the gospel being applicable to everybody. That's John's point. So John chapter 3, a conversation that centers on what is required to gain access to heaven. That's what this conversation is about. It is eye-opening in every sense of the term. It's like everything you thought you knew about John 3, when you really dive into it, it starts changing. And so we're going to jump into this text. John is showing us three things in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And the three things are, if you have your outline in front of you, the necessity of the new birth. Secondly, God's role in the new birth. And thirdly, the basis of the new birth. So let's dive in the necessity of the new birth. We'll spend most of our time in the first seven verses. Chapter 2. If you have your Bible in front of you, I hope you do. I hope you have the, the Word of God open in front of you because we're going to look at a number of things. Chapter 2 ends with many people who are intrigued with Jesus, like the signs he's doing, are attracted probably to his preaching, and we're told end up believing in him. But then as John goes on, it says reporting the words of Jesus, that Jesus did not believe in them, which is a very interesting play on words, which means that much of the belief we read about in verses 23 to 25, the end of chapter 2, much of this belief in Jesus is superficial, surface only, and not saving belief. Just because the Bible talks about faith or someone believed doesn't necessarily mean it's saving faith. So look at verses 23 to 25. Remember, chapter divisions did not come until the 13th or 14th century. So this originally was not divided into chapters. So what we have is verses 23 to 25 are a natural transition into the conversation with Nicodemus. Think of it that way. Verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Greek word there, anthropos, what was in each man. It's generic use of the word like mankind. So you have people believing in him, but the text then saying, but he didn't believe in them because he knew that many of them, their faith was very superficial. So look at verse 25. Again, Jesus knew what was in man. That's what the Greek says. But then now in verse 1 of chapter 3, now there was a man 
of the Pharisees. See, you, you begin to see this, this transition. And so let's just read the first three verses of chapter 3. So again, I'm ending with verse 25. For he knew what was in each person or in each man. Now there was a man, it says a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So understand what John's doing here. He's in chapter 2. Jesus says he doesn't believe in many of these people because they don't really have saving faith. That's, he didn't trust himself to man. Now there's a man who comes to him who is intrigued with his signs. So, in other words, Nicodemus is an example of the kind of superficial faith John is talking about at the end of chapter 2. Someone who's intrigued, who clearly knows Jesus comes from God, but is still spiritually lost. Religious, but on their way to hell. Now the question is, who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus, we're told he's a Pharisee. Pharisee, often in our day and age, we use the word kind of in a pejorative sense, kind of like they're a Pharisee. Pharisees back then, they were basically the spiritual elites and they were highly respected. They're the theological conservatives of their day. And Nicodemus happens to be on the Sanhedrin, which was basically the Jewish Supreme Court. So this is a man, understand, who is highly educated highly religious, probably affluent financially, and highly respected. I mean, he is at the top of the crust in that culture. In verse 10, Jesus even says, you are the teacher, the teacher of Israel. You're Israel's teacher. And yet Jesus tells him, your, what Jesus is saying is here, despite your credentials, which are off the chart, you are lost spiritually. Your religious credentials are not good enough to get into heaven. That's why, on one level, this is such an earth-shaking conversation. John tells us Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. There's been a lot of discussion about what, why at night. There's a number of theories. John doesn't tell us, per se, why at night. It's not that unusual. That is the time Jewish men tend to gather. In fact, in the Middle East, Muslims do the same thing in many cultures. The plazas at night are filled with people having conversations, and that is often the time of day, especially if it's a hot climate or a hot time of year when people, and especially men, would get together and talk. But the word night is also used in John's gospel in a spiritual and moral sense. So D.A. Carson, for example, one of the commentaries we're recommending has this very interesting insight into the kind of double use of the word night. Doubtless, he says, Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, literally in the evening. But his own night was blacker than he knew, the night in his soul. And that's often, often how John also uses the word. So the bottom line, let's kind of summarize where we're at. This encounter is designed to jolt us. Young people hear that. This encounter, this conversation, that, and that it's not recorded, in, by the way, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This dialogue here is designed to jolt us. Why? It's confronting one of the most common misconceptions when it comes to religion, which is what? That we gain entrance into heaven by doing something. <laughs> That's default for human beings. That's just the default setting. That we gain entrance into heaven by being good enough, praying enough, being religious enough, or being born into the right family, 
Obviously, Nicodemus, like so many other Jews, would have put a certain amount of weight just in the fact that he was born Jewish into the right family. A little bit like someone today you know, saying or thinking, hey, I'm fine. I was born Baptist. I'm born into a Presbyterian family, a Lutheran family, a Methodist family, a Catholic family. I'm okay. But Jesus is clear with Nicodemus. The only way to gain entrance into the kingdom of God is through a new birth. The phrase we translate born again can also be translated from above, born from above. You can, you can really translate it either way. The big point of this conversation is, picture this, Jesus is picking up basically a sledgehammer and just shattering the foundation that Nicodemus is standing on. He has spent, Nicodemus has spent his entire life amassing the right credentials, the right spiritual credentials, doing his best to follow the law of God, trying to earn his own salvation. And in one fell swoop, Jesus tells him, you are spiritually lost and you fall far short of what is needed to gain eternal life. Jesus is pointing out the absolute futility of religion. And that surprises a lot of people because, as you may know and you may think, many people believe as long as I'm trying, as long as I have faith, that's what counts. It's interesting that Queen Elizabeth years ago was defined as defender of the faith and that King Charles, our current king over in England, now calls it just defender of faith. That is a far cry from defender of the faith. And Jesus and the entire Bible tell us, the message of the Bible is we are born sinners. We are born lawbreakers. We are born under the judgment of God. And unless something happens that is supernatural, we will not see the kingdom of God. The Bible screams out in the prophets, screams out in the preaching of Jesus and the apostles, just because you're religious does nothing to please God or gain access to heaven. A lot of illustrations of this in the Bible, a lot of illustrations of this in history. One of my favorite that I go back to regularly and I even think about regularly is that of John Wesley, the world-famous evangelist who founded the Methodist Church. John Wesley was born in England in 1703. John Wesley was educated at Oxford University, ordained into the Church of England, never left the Church of England. In 1735, when he was a young man, he and his brother Charles were invited to the new colony of Georgia over here in the States by the governor who asked them to, quote, come evangelize the Indians. Now, Wesley's time in uh, Georgia proved to be very frustrating. If you know the history of John Wesley at all, it didn't go well. He actually spent most of his time in Savannah pastoring an Anglican church. In fact, today there is a statue of John Wesley in downtown Savannah. Becky and I have seen it. It's pretty impressive as it stands there and explains what he did there. But on, for two years, in feeling like he was getting nowhere with his congregation, nowhere doing his missionary work, and really felt bankrupt spiritually, his famous quote is, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? So he returned to London. Some of you, as Paul Harvey would say, you know the rest of the story. But some of you don't. He attended at one point, after he got back, 
a meeting of the Moravians. Now, the Moravians are a, a, a group of pietist, spirit, uh, these are Christians who are very sincere. They're from the modern-day Czech Republic. And they're having a meeting, May 24th, 1738. And someone is reading from the preface of Luther's commentary to Romans out loud at this meeting. And Wesley happens to go to this meeting. And in one of his most famous paragraphs anywhere in his writings, he describes what happened to him. Quote, on Wednesday, May 24th in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society meeting at Aldersgate Street, a Moravian meeting, one where one was reading Luther's preface to his epistle to the Romans. While he was describing the change which God works through the heart in faith in Christ, and then this very famous sentence, so he's listening to all this, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation and felt an assurance was given to me that he indeed had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Close quote. In other words, John Wesley was a missionary and then he got saved. And that is not unusual if you know the history of Christian ministry. Becky and I have a close friend who was a missionary for five years, and then he was converted to Christ. Just being religious, just being in ministry, just being a pastor, just being whatever, doesn't mean you are on your way to heaven. Never forget Matthew 7, Jesus said, one day there will be people in front of Jesus with incredible resumes, casting out demons, doing miracles, and preaching. And Jesus will still say to them, I never knew you. So religious activity, doing things, doesn't automatically please God. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you're spiritually bankrupt. Now as the conversation unfolds, Nicodemus clearly doesn't understand Jesus saying about the new birth. He's talking, unless you're born again, it goes right over his head. He takes it very literally. Verse 4, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked, surely you can't enter second time into your mother's womb to be born. So he takes Jesus crassly, literally, thinking he has to do something which is impossible. He's right on one level. So Jesus doubles down, which is interesting. Look at verses 5 to 7. Makes it clear he's not talking about physical birth, but spiritual birth. So verses 5 to 7. Jesus answered, and when you, when you see in the text, Verily, verily, or truly, truly. Just understand, he's doubly emphasizing, listen to what I'm about to say. This is really, I mean, we believe all the words in Scripture inspired, obviously. But Jesus is emphasizing what I'm about to say is really critical. So truly, truly, I say to you, <clears throat> no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You should not be surprised when I say, you must be born again. Now look at verse 5. First, let's take the phrase, unless one is born of water and the spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Some think that when Jesus says born of water, he's referring to the process of physical birth, the breaking of the water sack. Others have said, no, that's, that means he's talking about baptism here. 
that doesn't seem to be the case because as you look at the text, it seems clear that what Jesus is doing to describe the new birth is reaching into the Hebrew Scriptures and grabbing Old Testament imagery. And that imagery is of the Holy Spirit's internal work of salvation, which is symbolized by water cleansing them. And that's part of the reason he chastises Nicodemus here in a minute for not even understanding this. So a go-to passage here is probably something like Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. I put part of that here up on the screen just so you can see. This is probably the kind of text Jesus, and maybe this exact text, he doesn't say, <clears throat> that he's referring to. So Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart. Now notice who is doing the work. I will sprinkle you, this is God talking, water on you, and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes. So the issue is, who is doing the operative work here? And it is God. Now, verse 7. We have to stop and camp here for a couple minutes. Verse 7 contains a phrase which is can be confusing in English. And I, let me say it this way. When Jesus says, you must be born again, the problem is virtually every English translation sounds like Jesus is giving Nicodemus a command at this point. And ask yourself, how, I mean, how, you know, reading it, how would you take it? It looks like, sounds like to most people that he's giving him a command. But in the original Greek, it is very clear, when I say very clear because we know the tense of the verb here, that Jesus is not giving a command here. In fact, he's not telling Nicodemus to do anything here. The verb translated you must is not what we would say an imperative verb, which is the mood of that's the mood of command, of giving a command or an instruction to somebody, telling them go do something. It isn't. It's indicative. It's simply stating a fact. And that's a very important point at this point. In other words, what Jesus is doing is telling Nicodemus what has to happen if anybody is going to end up in the kingdom of God. A person must experience new birth. He is stating a fact, not giving a command. You got to let that sink in a minute. It may surprise you. There is no command to be born again in the Bible. In fact, there is no explanation how to be born again in the Bible. Neither are going on in this text because it's not up to us. It is a supernatural miracle and work of God that he gives to some. D.A. Carson, another commentary that we are recommending in this series, has a very insightful comment right here. He says, Jesus is not demanding that Nicodemus experience the new birth. Rather, he is forcefully declaring what must be experienced if a person is to enter the kingdom of God. And that is a bit of a paradigm shift for many. And the fact that Jesus is not giving a command here is emphasized even further if you look at verse 7. You have two uses of the word you in English. The first is singular, so it's clear he's talking to Nicodemus in the first one. You, Nicodemus, shouldn't be surprised at what I'm saying. But the second you 
is plural in the Greek. It's necessary for you, anyone, y'all, as I put in Southern terms, all of you to be born again. This is referring then to everyone. This is not a singular use of the word you. In other words, he's teaching the new birth is necessary for anyone who is going to gain access to heaven. And this will now lead Jesus very naturally into a clear teaching on God's role in the new birth. Namely, that the new birth is a sovereign work of God. It is not something we choose to do for ourselves. That brings us to verses 7 to 13. Let me read verses 7 to 8 where Jesus says it using a bit of a word play on the word uh, wind and spirit, same word, and telling us that as mysterious as from our perspective where the wind blows, that's how mysterious God's spirit works from our perspective. So verse 7 and 8, you shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What is he doing here? Jesus is telling us of God's role in the new birth. And the message is this, what must occur for us to enter the kingdom of God, for someone to enter the kingdom of God, is in fact something we are unable to do ourselves. And that's why the imagery of new birth is so powerful, so, so, so helpful. The verb in verse 7, to be born, is passive in the Greek. It means we don't play any role in the new birth. That's why there's no command given. That's why there's no explanation how to do this. Jesus is just declaring a fact. And just like we had nothing to do with our physical birth, I mean, think about it. How much did you have to do with being born? How much choice did you have in the whole process of physical birth? Point is, same thing with spiritual birth. That's why Jesus says in John 6, 44, chapter we'll get to in a bit, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. The Greek word is actually drags them. Now, once again, the reason we have no role in the new birth is goes back to something that we have to never forget. We are born, the Bible says, steeped in sin, slaves to sin, spiritually dead, says in Ephesians, enemies of God, Paul says in Romans, unable to seek God, which means I can't pray enough just to get into heaven. We can't attend church enough. We can't do enough good things. We can't give enough money. We can't keep enough rules to override the darkness and depravity of the human heart. The only way to get to heaven, says Jesus, says the apostles, is if God chooses to give someone new life. That's why you saw the same thing in Ezekiel. If God chooses to put the new heart in somebody, it is a sovereign gift of God given to some. And like the wind, from our perspective, God's Spirit blows where He chooses. And hear this, the unmistakable sign, the unmistakable sign that someone has been born again is that they have the ability to repent and believe the gospel. Another commentary we're recommending is R.C. Sproul. And I'm going to put this up on the screen. This, is, this captures this whole section so well in a comment he made. Becky has been reading D.A. Carson's commentary through the series. I've been reading R.C. Sproul's commentary through the series. And at this point, Sproul has this great paragraph 
really summarizing verses 7 to 13. If you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, it is because God the Holy Spirit in His sweetness, in His power, in His mercy, and in His grace has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. So you are now alive to the things of Christ. The problem for Nicodemus is in spite of his outstanding theological education and experience, he missed all of this in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's why Jesus chastises him here. He's like, where were you in Old Testament 101, dude? You missed this. Verses 9 to 12. How could this be, Nicodemus asked, after Jesus explains all this. You are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? That's God's role in the new birth. It's mysterious. It's a gift. He sovereignly opens some blinded eyes. He sovereignly gives some a brand new heart. And that is why they can repent and believe. That brings us to the basis of the new birth, verses 14 and 15. John will now give the basis of the new birth. What is it? It's the sacrifice of the Son of Man. That means the cross is at the center of salvation. And to explain this, Jesus refers to a bit of a strange story from Israel's past. It is a bit of a strange story. It comes from Numbers 21. To summarize it briefly, some of us know the story, some of us don't, but here it is. It's a time when the people of Israel were complaining and murmuring and grumbling, which never goes well with God. And so God, in this particular instance, sends poisonous vipers among the people to bite and kill a lot of them. You might say, wow, what, how does that fit with God's love? I don't know. I'm just telling you what the text says. Right? So he does this. Never think you have God all figured out. There's many aspects to God. You have his love and his mercy. You also have his judgment and his justice and his righteousness. And it all gets swirled together. And about the moment you think you've got nailed, you know, you got him figured out and nailed, he does something completely different. So God sends his poisonous snakes. They bite a bunch of the people and they die. And so the people ask Moses, you know, do something, you're the leader. And so Moses goes to God and says, you know, what can we do? And God says, okay, uh, make a bronze statue of a snake, put it on a pole, Raise it up, and so when the people get bit and they look at it, they'll be healed. Okay, so he does it, and it works. Jesus, playing off that story, talks a little bit and compares it now to his being lifted up on the cross. So look at verses 14 and 15. you got to know the background. Uh, and, And today, less and less people know their Old Testament, and so it's important to just explain the context here and what he's referring to. So verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, right there, that, that's that story I just told you, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So don't miss what he's saying. According to Jesus, the bronze snake being lifted up symbolized Jesus' own mission of being lifted up in his crucifixion That is the basis for how anybody can be reconciled to God. 
In other words, like the Israelites, we have sinned. And the punishment of our sin is the curse of death. We too have been bitten by the serpent and received his deadly poison. But when Jesus entered the world and he was lifted up on the cross to bear the curse we deserved, and if we look to him, the basis of salvation then becomes not self-improvement, not self-effort, but the crucifixion of the Son of Man and his resurrection. That is the whole basis for the, that's the operative theology behind everything Jesus is saying in John 1, 15. This is a jolting conversation. There's no command in it. There's simply the explanation of what happens if someone is going to see eternal life. Let me suggest this leads to at least one very strong summons, but then an implied summons. So, as we end this, first of all, here's, I think, the summons coming out of this today, and it is this. If you know you're born again, and I know there are many of us here today who have genuine saving faith. I know there are others here who do not, but many of us do. If you are genuinely born again and you know it, give thanks to God today afresh. Beloved, if you've been given a love for God, if you've been given a hatred for sin, if you've been given a heart that is eager to please God, this didn't come from you. If you've been given a heart that is hunger, uh, you know, has a hunger for holiness and a passion for God's word and a passion to respond to Him well, if you have received a love for others and an ability to forgive those who have wronged you, peace that passes understanding, then thank God because these are gifts that did not originate inside you. They're a gift from God and they come to whom God has chosen to give the new birth because they have a new heart. And the un, once again, the unmistakable sign that someone has been born again is that they finally have the ability to repent and believe the gospel. Another way that R.C. Sproul and others have said it is that repentance and belief are the fruit, not the root, of salvation. Secondly, let me say to those, you, you might be sitting here going, well, I, I don't have that assurance I'm born again. What do I do? If you sense God stirring in you today, if you sense God drawing you today, act on it now. That's what the Bible would say. Maybe you're sitting here today and like Nicodemus, you realize, I've been depending on, on religious stuff. My default setting has been law, not gospel. And you realize suddenly I'm spiritually lost. I'm on my way to hell. What do I do? Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, it is so easy to get a hard heart towards God. And the encouraging news about Nicodemus is that he does seem to eventually have been born again. He's mentioned in chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 19. And as far as we can tell, he is the only Pharisee in the Gospels that comes to saving faith. In chapter 3, he's clearly confused. By chapter 7, we're not quite sure. By chapter 19, it's clear he's moved, seems like, from confusion to conversion. And if God can save this man, the point is, God can save any moral failure. It is God's sovereign choosing. And if you sense him drawing you today, don't put it off. Don't hesitate. Act on that now. And the evidence that you will be born again 
is you will have the ability to repent and believe in Jesus. I love John's gospel. And he's going to keep emphasizing the importance of the Son of God as the only Savior and the only hope for eternal life. And my prayer, as I've shared below, before, is that at the end of this calendar year, we will have more who have true saving faith and have been baptized as a result of that faith than we had at the beginning of the year. And may God do that in our midst. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that we have John's gospel. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you led them to include other things, but we would not have this conversation had it not been for John. Thank you that you put it in the text. And the one coming soon on the Samaritan woman. May these stir us, open our eyes, of our need for the gospel. And Father, may there be more who believe by the end of this calendar year in our midst than when we started the new year. May you do a gospel work and continue to do it, not only in our church, but in other gospel preaching churches in our area. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.